Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, we are going to talk to Ambassador Mike Froman. Mike Froman was one of the architects of the Obama administration's trade and international economic strategy. Mike was President Obama's Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economic Affairs from 2009 to 2013. And he's best known as President Obama's U.S. Trade Representative, where he held that job from 2013 to 2017. I have a confession. Uh, I was supposed to join in the conversation with Chad and Mike, but unfortunately, Donald Trump threatened tariffs on Mexico. And so I had to I had to go back to my day job rather than be there for this one. So, so Chad is in charge. Don't worry, I will dip in to explain stuff where it, it is hopefully useful or, or just where I want to feel like I was part of the trade party. Anyway, mainly this episode is about China and the World Trade Organization. We'll hear about the many shared frustrations between the Trump administration and the Obama administration. I asked Mike how he saw China from within the Obama administration. With China's WTO accession in 2001, there was a sense, as I understand it, that there shouldn't be enforcement actions brought for the first few years. And so China was given sort of a a buy. And I don't know whether that was actually agreed to as part of their accession or it was just seen that they needed some time to adjust to being part of the WTO system. But there weren't a lot of enforcement actions brought against China until the second Bush administration. So by enforcement here, you mean formal WTO disputes challenging right. them? On, That's on right. So by the time we came in, I think there was a lot of pent-up frustration about how China's WTO accession had proceeded, the impact that it had had on manufacturing in the U.S. And I think one can debate how much of that was globalization generally that would have happened with or without China's WTO accession. But certainly with China's WTO accession, there was a, in a lot of companies, there was a greater degree of comfort that they could move their production to China and have the assurance that products produced in China would have access to the U.S., market. And so I think at least at the margin, it facilitated that kind of investment. I looked at a list of disputes on on the WTO's website. So this is where countries file formal complaints that China has broken one of the rules. Uh, To date, there have been 43 complaints against China. Now, Mike was right. They got a few years grace period or something. After China joined formally in 2001, there were no disputes against it until there was one in 2004. Then there were none in 2005. And then in in 2006, the complaints really got going. You've got complaints about China's VAT system, its intellectual property rights, charges it applies on imported car parts. There are a few complaints from other countries. You've got cases of the EU and the US both filing disputes at the same time. But the US is by far the most frequent complainer, and it's really leading the charge against China. In 23 of the 43 disputes against China ever, the US was the complainant. I want to go into a little bit more depth into one of the issues you touched on. The Obama administration really increased the number of enforcement actions against China. It filed a number of WTO disputes against China. So how did you prioritize that? Which cases did you decide to pursue? Which ones did you want to pursue but you couldn't? How does an administration make these kinds of decisions? So we tried to focus on ones that were either 
quantitatively very significant. And I, for example, one of the cases we brought, and, and one had to do with agricultural subsidies, where China was providing subsidies way in excess of what they had committed to to the WTO. And the WTO completely agreed, and, and uh, China was found to be at fault. But also ones that were systemically important. So one I remember we brought had to do with a series of this is one of the most difficult cases to put together. It had to do with a series of, of regulations at the local level and the provincial level that created something called export bases. And it, they were programs that basically provided subsidies to Chinese exporters. And we found something like 300 regulations that forensically we had to put together to really understand the program. Of course, these were all in, in Mandarin, so we used, had all of our Mandarin speakers translating these to find uh, the 300 offending regulations. But the result was is that it was a subsidy program, and we brought that to the Chinese. We filed at the WTO. We brought it to the Chinese, and the Chinese basically agreed, and they got rid of it. You know, the last case we brought which I, I think was one of the most interesting and complex cases, and it was literally in the last uh, couple of weeks of the Obama administration, had to do with aluminum and the overcapacity that had been created in China that was having a depressing effect on global aluminum prices and therefore damaging U.S. aluminum uh, smelters and companies. And it really focused on the role of state-owned banks and providing subsidized credit as well as other subsidies, subsidies for alumina, other inputs into the aluminum process. But what was interesting about it was looking at the structure of the banking system and how the structure of the banking system created these implicit subsidies for the aluminum sector, which then encouraged them to overproduce. And that had, in this case, because there's a one single price for aluminum, as opposed to it, was, it didn't matter whether they exported the aluminum or not or where they exported the aluminum, simply producing it produced this negative injurious effect on, on global prices. I'd say one more thing about China enforcement, which is goes beyond the WTO cases that we brought. One of the biggest challenges you have on the enforcement side is that you need information. The government doesn't have all the information at its disposal, particularly to understand what the injury has been to a US company or US industry. And so you need the cooperation and the active participation of U.S. industry to put together these enforcement cases. And in a lot of cases, the U.S. industry was unwilling to sort of put its head up or raise its hand or provide the necessary data to be able to put these cases. They would come in and raise concerns about what China was doing, but when it came time to actually put together the cases, for quite understandable reasons, they were worried about retaliation, uh, worried about uh, sharing uh, business proprietary information, but it just made the job all that more difficult uh, when you didn't have the data yourself to put these cases together and the industry wasn't necessarily willing to provide it to you. These systemic issues don't just affect the United States. What's that like as, a, as an official? How easy is it to get other countries to, to sign on? Uh, is there this frustration that we're carrying, we, the Americans, are carrying the entire load ourselves and others should be challenging China? Why aren't they challenging China? What's your sense of all this? Look, it's a good question. And I think that part of it is that the U.S. has been the leader of the global economic system for the last 75 years. And as a result, 
other countries look to us to carry that burden and are very happy to, you know, hold our coat while we do so or ride our coattails, however you want to, however you want to put it, but not invest themselves in that effort. Sometimes they are willing to join cases. And on occasion, they're willing to initiate cases and, and we join them and have in, in the past. But more often than not, they're very, they come to us. They're very happy to have us go and pursue these issues with China, but they don't necessarily invest a huge amount of effort themselves. And, you know, hopefully, particularly as the U.S. has stepped back from this leadership role to a certain degree, hopefully other countries will step up because it is very much in their interest. Over the course of the Obama administration, they initiated 14 separate WTO disputes. Other countries launched nine over that period. Now, WTO disputes are very fun, as as Chad will tell you, but during the Obama administration, there were lots of other types of engagement with China. Indirectly, there was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TPP, which, which didn't include China, but it was meant to be a counterweight to its influence within Asia. The administration was also trying to negotiate a bilateral investment treaty with the Chinese. So talks for that were launched towards the end of the Bush administration. And and the Obama administration really pushed it between 2014 and 2016. Mike wrote an article in the Washington Post back in February about, about this bilateral investment treaty. Their understanding at the time was that the Chinese leadership had decided that it wanted to wrap up this deal with the US as a way of pushing internal reform. Mike said that as part of those discussions, the Chinese had already agreed to liberalise investments in, in most sectors and lift its equity limits and joint venture requirements. It's those requirements the ones that force American companies to partner with Chinese companies when they enter the Chinese market. It's those that are the mechanism for this forced technology transfer that that the Trump administration is complaining about today. What are some of the other items and approaches the administration took toward China over those eight years? Well, there was just a lot of engagement and there were formal procedures for that engagement. We had the strategic and economic dialogue. We had the joint commission in commerce and trade. There were scientific dialogues, scientists to scientists. There were military to military conversations around cyber, uh, for example. Uh, There were some dialogues. Uh, We used enforcement mechanisms, both bilateral and through the multilateral system. And we used negotiations. We make most progress with China when we align ourselves with some constituency internal in China who also cares about that issue. So we made progress on intellectual property rights when they began to have their own software developers and intellectual property producers who also cared about having their rights protected. We make progress on some of these issues around state-owned enterprise reform or subsidies when their private sector is also chafing at the unfair competition in the market that is brought to bear because of the role of certain state-owned enterprises. And so if we can have those kinds of dialogues, and and we did a lot of it in the context of the bilateral investment treaty, then it has longer-term effect as well. If you had to do it all again, is there, are there things that the Obama administration should have done differently on China? Well, look, I think we all learn from our successors what further steps can be taken and can be useful. Yeah, I think this administration is clearly, the Trump administration has clearly developed a broad consensus across all the parties in the United States, but also in other countries, about their view of the nature of 
the challenge that China poses. And I think they've gone, been able to go farther than we were because there was still division at the time between, for example, ourselves and Europe and folks in Europe who were not as concerned about China and not willing to step out and put pressure on certain issues. So the Trump administration is obviously taking a very different approach toward China. And in one respect, they're doing this by tying a number of their actions in with concerns over national security. Were there similar pressures to to do this within the Obama administration? So I think there's been an evolution in the relationship between economics and national security that goes back now a few decades. It used to be conventional wisdom in Washington that the economic interests of the country were subjugated to the national security interests. That any time there was a trade dispute with the country, but we needed that country for some national security reason during the Cold War or otherwise, we would sublimate our economic concerns and just sort of suck it up. I think starting with the Clinton administration, who, for example, created the National Economic Council to be a force and a process within the White House equal to the National Security Council to make sure the economic issues were brought to the table. And certainly through the Obama administration, there was a bifurcation of the two issues so that we could say to a country, sure, we've got important national security issues to work with you on, but that doesn't mean we're going to subjugate our economic and our trade issues. And we're going to fight hard on the economic and trade side, even as we need to cooperate with you on counterterrorism, for example, or in the case of the European Union on NATO issues or national security issues in that context. This has evolved again, I think, in the current administration, where now China as a national security threat seems to be the dominant perspective of this current administration. And so they've relinked the trade issues, but in somewhat the opposite direction, saying, you know, if you uh, work with us on a national security issue, you may get a better deal on the trade side, witness North Korea. And so it's been, again, another step in that evolution. Okay. Now I want to turn to what the Obama administration was doing in the World Trade Organization, the WTO. It's not as if they weren't doing anything in Geneva. As you mentioned, there were all these disputes that were were being filed, but there were also some negotiations that were taking place. Can you tell us a little bit about those and some of the deals that got done? Yeah, I think when we came in and made it clear after studying it that our view was the Doha round itself was unlikely to reach a successful conclusion on the path it was on. That created an opening to start working on taking the pieces of the Doha round that could get done, like trade facilitation, like issues around agricultural subsidies, and to make progress on those. And we were able to achieve multilateral agreements on those. Similarly, we were able to achieve plurilateral agreements, so partial WTO agreements on various sectors like information technology products. There had been an information technology agreement back in the, I guess, the 90s. This was an opportunity. There were a lot of new IT products that were still subject to tariffs. And we were able to come up with a list with a critical mass of countries, including China, that eliminated tariffs on about 200 categories of of products worth about a trillion dollars of trade. We tried to do the same on environmental goods. We were not as successful because at the end of the day, China just felt like it couldn't move forward and tabled a proposal that was clearly intended to deadlock the negotiations. 
And then on the dispute settlement piece, I think we had, there had been longstanding concerns that at times some appellate body members would go beyond their mandate and try and fill in law where it didn't exist, where there was no agreement among the members. And that was against our understanding of what the Uruguay Round really meant, that the dispute settlement body was supposed to reflect the agreement among the members. It wasn't supposed to be what we would call dicta. That dicta was not supposed to have any effect. And they were supposed to stick to the confines of what had been agreed to. So we, at one point, uh, rejected the, the reappointment of an appellate body member and encouraged the country from that of that member to suggest somebody else, which who we quickly approved. So we didn't stymie the workings of the dispute settlement body. We were willing to approve appellate body members who we felt had a history and a, and a perspective of keeping to the Uruguay round. And by the way, this had nothing to do with whether we won or lost those cases. It was really about a, an approach to WTO jurisprudence and whether the appellate body members were sticking to the Uruguay Round Agreement or were creating new law. And we were not in favor of appellate body members who created new law. As all Trade Talks listeners should know by now, this appellate body business is a really big deal. And I would heartily encourage everyone to go back and listen to episode 60 about all the ins and outs of it. The contrast Mike is trying to draw is between the actions of the Trump administration, which is refusing to appoint any judges at all, and the actions of the Obama administration, where where essentially they were trying to influence the appointment of judges away from ones that, as he puts it, would, in their rulings, create new law. Let me try to push back against that a little bit. And This is a bit of an unfair fight because you're a trained lawyer and I'm not. It's hard to look at this, though and not see it or not interpret it as a little bit of sour grapes. That, you know, the examples where the United States is arguing that there has been dicta or judicial overreach are all in these cases that we've lost. And in all of the great cases that we've won on the offensive side that we've brought forward and the WTO has ruled in our favor, those are all fine. So how do how I, I, is, think I would put it that how way. do we draw the line yeah. between what's what's right and what's what's not right in this space? I think some of the cases that we cited we weren't even parties to, so it wasn't just cases that we lost. I think there were cases where we felt like there had been judicial overreach, and but I think what was very important is that we still valued very much valued the dispute settlement body and the appellate body and the procedure and the certainty that that created. And so we were willing to appoint if we, other members to the appellate body who we felt would adhere to the constraints of the Uruguay Round Agreement. So last question on the WTO. What do you think is the future of the WTO? Well, look, I think if it has those three functions, negotiating, monitoring, and dispute settlement, I think negotiating is going to have to be a practical approach to doing agreements among the coalitions of the willing that are then open to others who want to join and to build out support from there. I think holding out for one big all-inclusive round is not likely to produce success. So these plurilateral agreements. I think the plurilateral agreements are probably the way to go, as long as it's open plurilateralism so that other countries can join if they are ready and willing to live up to the standards. I think on the monitoring, I think we need to hold countries' feet to the fire that they live up to their obligations to, to really submit their 
policies and practices to the scrutiny of the international body. And on dispute settlement, I'm hopeful that other countries will work with the United States on a reform package that can allow new members of the appellate body to be appointed and to keep that process alive. I think I think it's a mistake to have nostalgia for the period before the WTO when there wasn't any binding and enforceable dispute settlement. I think that's been an important advance over the last 20 plus years to have a place that countries can go to and get a definitive ruling that's not just their own personal view, but the view of the global trading community that a country is in violation or not in violation of agreement, because then that allows for further pressure on those countries that are in violation to bring their policies and practices into conformity. That is all from Mike. My big takeaways are that the Trump administration's frustrations were clearly shared by those in the Obama administration, but the Trump administration is pushing much harder and much faster than they did. And Mike said that one reason the Trump administration is able to go further is that there's now a broad consensus between you know, the EU, the US, about the challenges posed by China. Whereas when he was imposed, there was much more division. I guess what I would point out here is, while President Trump may have woken up the Europeans and other countries to the challenges that China is posing to the trading system, he really hasn't taken advantage of working with them to help resolve the problem. Yeah, there is this trilateral process, this this process between the EU, the US and Japan about how to write new rules that would deal with some of the, the shared concerns they have about China. There is that process, but it, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere very quickly. It seems also rather secondary to you know the bilateral that the Trump administration is pushing. They don't really seem to be trying to use that that common concern as leverage to get the Chinese to sign up to anything right now. I guess the other thing I should say is that yes, there is this big contrast between the you know more multilateral institutions friendly approach of the Obama administration and then the much more aggressive approach of the Trump administration. But we shouldn't be overly optimistic about the potential of the, the sort of friendlier approach to work. Yes, there had been progress on China in those bilateral investment treaty negotiations, but it's always that last 10% that is that is the toughest to agree. So it's possible that they were still quite far away from a final deal. And even in that context in the Obama administration, I'm not sure what it would have even meant if China had agreed to this deal. Congress, it, it turns out, wasn't even willing to pass the TPP agreement. I don't see how the Senate was going to ratify a, a bilateral investment treaty with, with China. That just seemed to be a political non-starter. The one important thing that I did pull out from what he said about the World Trade Organization was the Obama administration's approach to, to saving the system. And their approach was to explicitly to kill off the Doha round and then to salvage the, you know, the, the parts of it that were left to try to keep the system going. And so they, along with other countries, did get this deal on information technology. They got one on trade facilitation, killing off export subsidies for agriculture. And today there are these ongoing negotiations for e-commerce and, and fishery subsidies. So those are all a part of that strategy. The big risk there, though, is that you can lose the legitimacy of, of a big consensus-driven process. And another is you may never get a big enough package that you can trade off one thing against another. I win a lot here, I lose a little bit there. 
if there aren't these trade-offs that, that are enough to create wins for everybody, then you may not be able to actually tackle the really big and important stuff that has to get done. And also, even as we're seeing today, this, this process of negotiations is, is still quite slow and it's not very exciting. So maybe that's good. Maybe you don't want this to become too politicized. I think a lot of the excitement of the negotiations that we've seen in the Trump administration hasn't necessarily been for good. Chad's slogan for 2020, make trade policy boring again. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Ambassador Mike Froman, currently at MasterCard, and formerly the US Trade Representative and Deputy National Security Advisor. And thanks also to Colin Warren, who handles our audio. And also make sure to send us ideas and feedback. We are at email at tradetalkspodcast.com. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to ways of tackling trade problems posed by China, maybe two is better than one. So I'm recording this under a blanket in my bathroom. That was a terrible joke. It wasn't a joke. I don't even get it. But I'm so hot. I need this to end. (laughs) 